Esther chapter 10, there are only three verses in this short text. This is the conclusion of the story of Esther, and this will be our focus this morning. Esther 10, 1 through 3. Esther 10, the text reads as follows. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might. And the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai... The Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Esther 10, 1 through 3. Perhaps the question this morning right in front of your mind now is relevancy. What is the relevancy of this passage This is a strange ending to a strange book. Indeed, as most people turn to their Old Testament, the question of relevancy is a common one. Maybe if you're reading the Psalms or the Proverbs, sections of that part of the Old Testament, it isn't as much of a struggle for you to to discern the relevancy of those passages to your life. But then when you turn to some of the narratives, the stories of the Old Testament, you really struggle with the relevancy. What is, what is the relevancy of this passage to my life right now? And that is a unique struggle really to the book of Esther. As you probably know, Esther does not include one mention of the name of God. What is the relevancy of a book that doesn't even care to mention God's name? Beyond that, what is the relevancy of a book that includes no worship, no real religious devotion? No person praising God, no person thanking God, no person praying to God, no person exercising of their own will some act of religious devotion to God. What is the relevancy of a book like that? And then you turn to the ending, and this ending, Esther 10, 1 through 3, and there's miscellaneous details given about a king's reign and his taxation policies and his second in command, Mordecai. What's the relevancy of this for us this morning? And to answer that question, the outline this morning is really simple. It's just three questions. What, how, and why? Shouldn't be super hard to remember. What, how, and why? What is the relevancy of this ending for us? The first question this morning is what? What is going on in this passage? And we'll arrive at this by a little bit different way, and that is to think about the nature of a story or a narrative. How do you know when a story has ended? How do you know that a narrative is over? Is it when you close the book, the narrative is over? Or perhaps you've exemplified this with a child. You've read a story to your child and you stopped reading somewhere in the middle of the story. And your child doesn't know the page count. They don't know how many pages are left in the story, but they instinctively know the story is not over they realize you have left the story on a cliffhanger. How do they know that the story has yet to be finished? Or maybe another example. Maybe you've read a book series. There are six or seven books in this particular series, 
and you finish one of the books, but you instinctively know the story is yet unfinished. There are still things that must happen. How do you know that a story is over? Well, you know that a story is over when the primary fear or the primary tension within that story has been fully resolved. Once the tension or the fear has been resolved, then it could be said the story is over. Once the race of the tortoise and the hare is over, the story ends. So when you finish the fear, you finish that tension, you realize there's not anything else the story really needs to accomplish. What is the primary fear? What is the primary tension that's driving the book of Esther? As you turn from page to page, what is the fear that keeps you fully engaged in how this story will end? Well, perhaps we just need to briefly rehearse the drama of Esther. If you think about how Esther begins, it begins describing a king. This king who's mentioned here in Esther chapter 10, King Ahasuerus. Now, what do you remember about this king? Is he, you know, a diplomatic leader, a gracious husband, one who is very humble and down to earth? No, you're probably thinking the exact opposite of all those characteristics. Indeed, when you open the book, you read this narrative about King Ahasuerus. And this king is described as a man who's driven by his lusts and his passions. He makes rather impulsive decisions, very hasty, very rapid in terms of his thought process. He decides something almost on a moment's notice. This king, at the beginning of the book of Esther, has... A 180-day celebration to display his wealth. This is a man who is very self-focused. He summons in all these rulers from all about his empire, brings them to the capital city, Susa, and there he has this extravagant display of his magnificence. And then, at the end of this display, he has a seven-day feast. And there is only one law of this feast that we find out in chapter 1, and that is, There is no drinking according to compulsion. In other words, you don't have to drink when someone tells you to. You may drink whenever you want. This is a man who's driven by his lust, by his appetites, by his passions, and he acts impulsively. Then, as you keep reading the drama of Esther, you realize that this king, over a magnificent empire, has appointed a second-in-command individual, and that man's name is Haman. And as you read the book of Esther, you realize that this man, Haman, is an Amalekite. And that's no cursory detail to this story. If you think back to Amalek's nation and their interactions with the people of God, it's not one that's seen as overly positive. In fact, just when God brings the nation of Israel out of the land, Amalek is the first country to attack them at Rephidim, seeking to wipe them out. It's almost as if the drama between Israel and Amalek is being replayed in this narrative. And beyond that, we realize one more detail about Haman. He's not just an Amalekite. He's the direct descendant of Agag, one of the kings of this people. And if you recall, you remember that Saul was commanded to eradicate the Amalekites and to kill Agag. It's almost as if the drama between Israel and Amalek, between their kings, is being replayed in the book of Esther. Then you keep reading this drama and you realize that this individual Haman is angered. He is incensed by a Benjaminite, a man from the same tribe of Saul. And he's incensed because that person does not bow down to him. And in response, you know this, he issues a decree. 
And this decree is found in chapter 3. I just want to draw attention to some wording. Look at chapter 3 of Esther, verse 13 and 14. It says, letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. This decree is comprehensive. Notice the repetition of verbs, destroy, kill, annihilate. Just one of those verbs would have been sufficient. But in case you would have no mistake, what this decree is telling all the people to do toward the Jewish people, it's stated here, destroy, kill, annihilate. Not just the men, not just those who are of strength, but the young, the old, all the women, all the children. This is the fear that drives the drama of this book. So when you come to the end, when you arrive at this section, chapter 10, verse 1 through 3, and you read that now there is an individual under this wicked, impulsive king, an individual who is a Jewish man, Mordecai, and that man is speaking peace to his people, and he's seeking the welfare of his people. You realize that God has preserved his people, that throughout this story, significant events have taken place whereby God's people may be preserved. Well, how are they preserved? How does God accomplish this? Well, as you notice, and as you recall, there is no mention of God in this book. It's almost as if the author of Esther is inviting you to read the drama of Esther and look for God's hidden workings. God's workings that are present, but are not clearly stated. Though the sun is covered by clouds, the sun is still shining. Though God's works are not explicitly detailed in this book, his hand is all throughout the drama. And you see that in dramatic reversals throughout the book. If you think about the number of what we would call coincidences that occur, coincidences that occur in this book, it's staggering. Mordecai happens to overhear a plot to kill the king. He just happens to be standing in the right location whereby he might hear this. And it's not just any plot, it's a plot against the king. Eventually, he refuses to submit to Haman's authority. And Haman concocts a scheme to eradicate Mordecai and all of his people. And on the day, on the night before that Haman is going to execute Mordecai, the very night before, the king cannot sleep. Another mere coincidence. The king cannot fall asleep. And in order, maybe to help him fall asleep or to help him pass the time, he summons individuals in to his room and says, read from the book of the Chronicles of the Kings. Read from this book telling me what's happened. Not just any book is chosen, a very specific book, a book that has mention of Mordecai. And it just so happens that Mordecai has not been honored for his action, which occurred far in the past. When you put all these details together, you see God's hidden workings at play in this book. Mordecai is honored. Haman is shamed. Dramatic reversals characterize this book until the height of them, and that is in Esther chapter 9, verse 1, and it says this, Now in the twelfth month, month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. 
the Jews destroy their enemies. Rather than them being eradicated, they eradicate those who hate them. And lest you have any fear that there will be peril in the future for this people, the ending tells us this, that now there is an individual right at the king's right hand, Mordecai, and he is seeking the good of the Jewish people. All throughout the book of Esther, you see God's hidden workings at play. We have a term for that. What is that term? It's God's providence. It's God's providence. I think it's helpful for us to consider how we use the term providence. What is the difference between providence and sovereignty? Sometimes we use those terms interchangeably, but they're not. Perhaps a helpful example would be to think about a child. If you take a child to the beach, one of the things that they love to do is to play in the sand. When you bring your child to the beach, they arrive at a position of sovereignty over the sand the moment they step onto the beach. By virtue of the fact that they are standing above the sand, they now have authority to do whatever they wish with the sand. But until they pick up a shovel or use their hands or some rake or some instrument used to play in the sand, until they exercise the use of that instrument, they have not exercised what we would say providence. They have not exercised the purpose. We as Christians affirm readily that God reigns over all. This is something we know. But it's not just that God is in a position of authority over all creation. It's that God is actively working his authority. That's why some have described providence as God's purposeful sovereignty. There is an end goal in mind. God's sovereignty has a purpose. The Westminster Larger Catechism defines it like this. And this is helpful. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions to his own glory. There is nothing in this world that is outside of God's providence. God's providence is governing every single thing that happens. Everything is under this banner. Every minute detail of your life is under the banner of God's providence. And that's what occurs in the book of Esther. Every hidden working. A sleepless night. The selection of a book. A political appointment. An act of immorality. An impulsive decree. Refusal to go home. A deceptive father figure. Wicked intentions and schemings, the orphaning of a young girl, all of those are under God's providence. He is actively working in them and he is working them out for his own glory. This morning, has anything changed? Has anything changed about God's workings in this world? Is everything still under the banner of God's providence? What about the traffic patterns on the 118? Are those under God's providence? What about the high volume of rain that we have received recently? Is that a display of God's providence? What about a resignation? What about an emotional breakup? What about a concerning health diagnosis? What about the sudden passing of a loved one? What about an estranged sibling? Or the blooming of a wildflower? The movement of an ant, the fall of a raindrop, 
What about the sin that you committed yesterday? Are all of those under God's providence? Is God's providence over all of those actions? As a Christian, the struggle really for us isn't a struggle of knowledge. When you think about our struggle with God's providence, is it that we don't know that God is in control of all things and actively working them out? Is that the struggle for us? Is the struggle in our heart? Maybe we don't love God's providences. We know he's in control of all things. We know he's actively working out his purposes, but we just don't love that. Is that where the struggle is? Well, perhaps, but I believe it's one step farther. To to agree, to assert, to affirm this truth that God is providential in everything, in all the actions of his creatures, in all of the actions of your life, is to assert something about God's rule. It's about his reigning. And that brings the struggle not from just the mind, not from our heart. That brings the struggle to our will. The struggle to submit to God's providence is a struggle not primarily of what you know. It's not if I knew God's particular purpose, well then I could submit. Or if I loved God's providences because I knew what he was doing, well then I would submit. No, the first act of submission is to bring your will under the providence of God. The things that God has allowed to occur and has actively worked out, to bring your will under that is to submit to God's providence. Thereby you may love it. You cannot love something you have not submitted to. and You cannot love God's providences if you are fighting it right now. This morning, where are you in relation to God's providence. To submit to God's providence is a daily, hourly, every minute by minute, moment by moment, declaration of your spirit, your will, not mine. Because every moment, every minute, every day, every hour, every year, God's providence is at work. Where are you before God's providence? Well, that is the what of this passage. But that brings us to a second question of this text, and that is the how. We affirm God's providence. We accept it as true. But how is it manifesting itself? What is the means that God uses in this ending to accomplish his purposes? In this text, the preservation of his people. What is the means that he used? Well, If you look at this text, look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. At one level, his providence and his purposes are accomplished by the ruling of a wicked king, King Ahasuerus. And this ending is meant to parallel the beginning. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read to you the opening statement of this book. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus... The Ahasuerus who reigned, and now here's a statement about the display of his empire. From India to Ethia, over 127 provinces. The book begins by a declaration of the extravagance, the extremities of this man's rule, of his empire. And it ends with a statement that he has the ability to impose tax on the coastlands and on the sea. But there is one unique difference between the beginning and the ending of this book, and that is who is mentioned. Look with me at the text. Verse 2, 
and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? What is the difference? It's the inclusion of somebody. It's not just King Ahasuerus who God is using to work out his purposes. Who else is God using? Well, you have to accept what the text says, and it says Mordecai. How would God use Mordecai to accomplish his purposes? What is the means by which this may take place? Well, look at the text, verse 2. It says, all the acts of his power. We're speaking to King Ahasuerus and his might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Where might you read about those? Where might you find them? Well, look at the text. Look at verse 2. You can find those detailed in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. Do you understand what's going on there, even with that wording? It would be like this. If you were to open a book about the British monarchy, and you begin to read through all the different British monarchs, you, like many other Americans, are obsessed with the British monarchy for no apparent reason. And you love the drama. You read about all these monarchs and queens and kings. You read about Queen Victoria. Queen Elizabeth, King Edward, King James, reading through the various history. And then you read an entry about a vice president of the United States. That would seem slightly out of place, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be fitting to the content or the major themes of that book. Well, that's really what's taking place here. If you desire to read about the kings of Media and Persia, you'll read about King Ahasuerus. But you know who else you'll find? You'll find a Jewish man. A Jewish man who's the second in command. He doesn't seem to fit here, and yet he is there. Why would the narrator of this book, the author of Esther, give us this detail? It's as if he's seeking to portray this fact that the, this individual, Mordecai, though not a king, is functioning like a king. He is exercising his rule. In fact, if you read the previous chapter, you realize that because of Mordecai's decrees, fear of Mordecai has fallen upon all the people. You would expect them to be afraid of their lustful, impulsive, obsessive king. But no, they are afraid of this Jewish man who is at the second in command. This man is functioning as a king here at the end of the book. And this point is punctuated by the repetition of the word great. The word great occurs three times in this passage. It's translated here as advanced in verse 2. It's translated as the high honor of Mordecai in verse 2. And then it's translated as great in verse 3. And that word great, particularly its repetition, brings Mordecai into a significant company of people in our Old Testament. Can you think of any other individuals who are described as great or that they would be made great? Can you think of any? Well, Abraham would be one. Remember God told Abraham that he would make his name great. Can you think of any others? Well, God told King David that he would be a great individual and that his house would be great. And then you read about King David's son, Solomon, and it says that he was great more so than any before and any after in the sense of the display of his rule, the height at which his kingdom arrived to. So to describe Mordecai with the same terminology that Abraham and David and Solomon brings him into a unique company, a company of rulers. 
Now, consider who Mordecai was. Consider the person that God chose to bring about his providence. It's easy for us to read the book of Esther and to think very highly of the Jewish characters in the story. King Ahasuerus, wicked, impulsive, hasty, rash. Haman, hater of God's people. Murderer, seeking to annihilate all of them. Wicked, scheming. Mordecai, faithful, bold, confident. Esther, courageous. And that might be a misreading of the story. You see, there's no mention of God in this story. And perhaps the reason is because of the moral ambiguity of the character's actions. If you read about Mordecai and you really probe what's going on in the story, you realize he's not being commended by this book. The first question that might arise is, why is Mordecai still in Susa? Why is he still in the capital city? A decree has been given so that the Jews could go back to their homeland, but Mordecai did not go. Beyond that, Mordecai has encouraged. No, he's not just encouraged. He has commanded his adopted daughter, Esther, not to reveal her Jewish identity. And lest you bring out your situational ethics handbook, this is not to acquire a greater good. This is five years before a decree has been issued by Haman and the king to eradicate all Jews. Why would he command his adopted daughter to not reveal her identity? To do that for a long period of time would have involved multiple compromises on the law of God. Compromises about eating, about behavior, about conduct. All of those would have taken place just so she would not have made her Jewish ethnicity and her identity known. Think about how God's law was written. The God's law was written to identify, to separate God's people from all the nations. And yet here they are trying to blend in, to be camouflaged amongst the nations. And then beyond that, it seems as if Mordecai condones an act of immorality with a pagan king. We read the story of Esther and we tell the story about the beauty pageant that Esther takes place in. And that is an appropriate story maybe to tell a child. But as you probe the details of what's taking place in that beauty pageant, you realize that this is a wicked, a sordid, and an immoral affair. This is an act of sensuality. The statement is that whoever would please the king at night would become the queen. And Esther is said that she pleases the king more than any of the other women. And Mordecai is condoning this. He's supporting this. This is five years prior to an issue of a decree by this same king to eradicate all the Jews. What's the purpose in Mordecai endorsing and condoning these behavior? You realize this story about Mordecai and you realize that this is not the man that we think he is and we commonly read him to be. Yes, he displayed boldness. Yes, he supported the king. But this is a man with deep religious flaws who compromised on the word of God that had been given to him, who was ashamed of his identity as a Jewish person. This is the man that God used to accomplish his purposes. Is there any encouragement for you this morning in that fact? That God would use even a dark sinner, a wicked man like Mordecai, to bring about his purposes. This brings tension maybe into the way we use the term providence. That God is providential, not just over suffering, 
not just over the abstract details of our lives. God is providence over our sin. God's providence governs our sin. And perhaps that's because of the way in which we use the term providence. Maybe just imagine with me for a moment. Think back to the last time you heard someone say, well, that's providential. What were they describing? Something good or something bad? Probably something good. Oh, that's providential. That's, oh, wow, that worked out. You sit next to someone on the airplane who you haven't seen in years or you meet them in the airport. Wow, that's really providential. You have a chance to share the gospel with that person. The Lord brings a car or a house or some display of financial benefit to your life, maybe through a raise at work. Wow, that's, that is really providential. Thank you, Lord. And those would all be true, right affirmations. But I think it reveals to us the way we think about providence. Is it right to say that anything is more providential than another thing that happens under God's ordination and God's decree? A historical example of this would be in the 1650s. There was a ruler in England named Oliver Cromwell. And this man was appointed to be the Lord Protector of the land. He had accomplished a number of victories against his enemies. And he believed that it was God's providence that had enabled him to accomplish those victories. And so he had this idea to go establish a fleet, sail all the way across the ocean, and invade the island of Hispaniola, which was Catholic at the time. Oliver Cromwell was a Protestant, and he believed that this act was going to usher in the kingdom of God. That this would be God's providential workings to bring about his purposes. So he drafted this fleet, summoned all these soldiers, sailed across the ocean, invaded this land, and was defeated utterly by an extremely small, ill-equipped force. And his critics said the same thing that he used to support his endeavor. They said it was God's providence that humbled him. You see the way in which they're using the term providence is almost at odds with each other? Or think about this example. This is rather outlandish, so just imagine the scenario with me. Imagine your neighbor, hopefully they're not, you know, someone in here. Uh, they have this scheme, they see your kitchen pots and pans, and they really are envious. And they craft this elaborate scheme to walk across the street and steal your kitchen pots and pans. You can see the, how outlandish this story is. And as they're walking across the street, they trip and fall, and they break their ankle. And they go to the hospital. And they feel so overridden by the guilt of their action. And they think, wow, God must have caused me to trip and fall my ankle because he didn't want me to steal that. Well, they should, they should really think that for a number of other reasons, much less it says that we are not supposed to steal in the scriptures. But what if they were to go and steal the pans and be successful? Would you say that was as providential as them falling and tripping and breaking their ankle and not being able to do it? I bring up these examples just to reveal to us the way in which we use the term providential isn't balanced. We are often using the term providential to apply to acts of good that happen for our benefit that we can see tangibly. In exclusion of the hidden workings of God that we do not see that often are accomplished and they seem to bring about negative results for our life. Maybe it's a car accident. Maybe it is a difficult health diagnosis. Maybe it is something that we don't expect or an act of sin that we have committed. Was God's providence in that circumstance? When you look backwards on your life, what do you see? 
Maybe you see a past tainted by sin. Maybe you see a foolish decision that was not made by faith that you really regret. Maybe you see a circumstance in which you said something to a parent or a younger sibling that resulted in them being estranged from you. Maybe you see a broken, sordid history of sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, everything that we have ever done, every sin that we have committed with a rebellious nature against God, every time He has blessed us and we have responded in return with sin toward Him, every single one of those times is under His providence. Every single one of those acts, God is using to accomplish His purposes. All of our weaknesses, all of our failings, God will use to bring about His own glory. This is the glory of the term providence. That raises one final question of this text. The what, God's providence is preserving His people. The how, God uses a wicked, flawed individual. But the why, why would God do this? Was there an ultimate end that God had in mind for this purpose that we can discern? Why did he accomplish this in this way? And that is answered by looking again at the text. Look with me at verse 3. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The last word of the book of Esther is translated in your Bible as people. Or if you have a different translation, not the English Standard Version, maybe it's translated as offspring or descendant or Jewish nation would be a looser rendering of this word. Or perhaps, and this would be a good translation, and that is the word seed. This is a unique word that is theologically ripe. There is a lot of baggage Good baggage that is associated with this word, the last word of the book, the word seed. Can you think of any other places in your Old Testament where a significant promise about a seed or a descendant or an offspring or a one to come is mentioned? Can you think of any? Well, hopefully you can think of at least one. There is one that stands above all the rest, and that is in the book of Genesis. And I would like you to go there with me this morning. Go with me to Genesis, and the chapter I would like you to turn to is Genesis chapter 3. Here, following an act of sin that takes place in the providence of God, it's not just that God rules over this act of sin, God has providentially ordained such things to be decreed before the foundations of the world because you have been chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world. Look at this occurrence of this word. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall, bruise your, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There this term appears again. It's a promise, a promise after mankind has sinned, after Adam and Eve sinned, plunging the rest of humanity into utter sin the rest of their days. God issues a promise, a hope, 
a blessing to come that one day a offspring, a seed, a person will come who will overturn what has taken place in Genesis chapter 3, who will overturn all the sins that have ever been committed upon this world. So when you read the book of Esther and you see God's hidden workings at play such that he would preserve his people and the last word of the book is that there is an individual ruling over his people speaking peace to his seed. What is the implication? That that promise in Genesis 3.15 has been preserved. That God's promise to preserve his people will not fail because one day there is coming one, the seed, the ultimate descendant from Israel to deliver God's people. This displays God's faithfulness. Displays the hope that he ha- we have in him. Who is that seed? Who is that offspring? Well, you know this, it's Jesus Christ. But is there any way you could even discern that from this passage? Well, I think there is. and It's this last line. It says that Mordecai spoke peace to all his people. Those two words in the original text are rarely combined in your Bible. For an individual to speak peace. Only twice in your Old Testament do they occur. And I want to take you to one of the other pertinent references. And that's in the book of Zechariah. So turn with me to the book of Zechariah. And I would ask you to turn to the ninth chapter of this book. Zechariah chapter 9. I'll give you some time to turn there. As you're turning, think about the way Christians have historically commemorated this day. One Sunday before Easter. They often refer to this as Palm Sunday because of the triumphal entry which occurs one week prior to the resurrection of Jesus. And if you recall those events, you remember the people bringing out palm branches and laying their coats on the ground and they say things about Jesus. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, what is it about Jesus' act that helps them to believe that this is the king coming? Is there something that Jesus does? Well, look at this text. Zechariah chapter 9, and look at verse 9. And this is the Old Testament text that really is, forms the foundation for what occurs on Palm Sunday. Zechariah 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. Having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, this is the passage they have in their minds. They see one who's been working miracles, who's been testifying to the fact that he is the Messiah, and now he's entering Jerusalem on a colt. Well, keep reading. Look at verse 10. Look at what this king will do. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And what will this king do? He will speak peace, not just to the seed, Not just to the people of Israel, but this individual will speak peace to the nations. When this king comes, he will bring salvation and he will bring peace and he will speak it unto all the nations. Now, this passage probably is referring to the second coming of Christ. Christ will bring about physical deliverance. And that's what the Israelites expected. They expected the king, Jesus, to bring about physical salvation from the oppression of the Roman Empire. They expected him being peace, peace for all the nations from the oppression of Rome. 
And so we think that this passage does look forward to the second coming. But is there any way in which it can be said that this was accomplished in Jesus' first coming? When Jesus first came, did he bring salvation? Did Jesus bring peace to the nations in his first coming? Well, yes, he did. How did he accomplish this peace? Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us what? That brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. If you are in here this morning and you are a Gentile, peace is out there for you. And it has been accomplished by the work of Jesus Christ in bearing away your sins. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is the plan of God's providence in the Old Testament that leads to the first coming in the New Testament. All of God's providences found in the book of Esther are working toward this one conclusion, that Jesus Christ would be preserved through the line of Israel and that one day he would come and step foot on this earth and he would bear all of your transgressions upon him as he went to the cross and he would issue peace to you because he atoned for all of your sins. That is the end goal of providence in the first coming of Jesus. What is the end goal of providence prior to the second coming? Jesus. Well, it's that same accomplishment. It's that one day Jesus would return to this earth. He would live among us. He would rule. He would bring salvation and he would speak peace to all the nations because under his reign, all the nations will experience peace. You see, there is coming a day When you will no longer struggle to submit to God's providence in your life. When you will behold the king in his beauty. You will see his reigning and ruling over all this world. You will see his acts and his decrees. And you will never question his providence in your life again. Because as you see him, you will be finally and utterly transformed into his image. Whereby you would implicitly trust his purposes. That is the goal of God's providence. This work of providence exalts the person of Jesus Christ. When you look back on your past and you see a history of sin, wrong, foolish decisions, when you go through suffering and difficulty in this life right now, whatever the struggle to submit to God's providence is found in, be encouraged this morning because God is using our weaknesses, God is using our sufferings, God is using even our past past sins to accomplish the glory of this king, the glory of Jesus Christ. God will preserve you until his coming again or until you go to be with him in glory. Perhaps this morning you're an unbeliever and you've been struggling. You've been wrestling to submit to God's providence. You dealing with some difficulty in your mind, something that God has given in your life. He's turned your family upside down, maybe by someone's conversion. He's altered your life significantly. This morning, God is calling you to submit yourself to his rule. You submit yourself as you repent and believe that only Jesus can bring you peace. Only he can issue peace 
with to, to you before God in heaven. Only he can free you from his wrath. Perhaps this morning you are a Christian. And maybe the application for us, all of us this morning would be this. To consider and to look back on God's providences in our life. Whereby we were brought to salvation. To marvel at how he preserved his people throughout the Old Testament so that Jesus Christ would come. And then how he will continue to preserve his people even in this New Testament era. Until Jesus returns again to reign over us. If you think back to your life prior to conversion. Think about all the providences that were at work for you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you grew up in a family that taught you the things of God from a very early age. Think about how your parents came to faith in Christ. And how God orchestrated the events around their conversion where that, whereby they would repent and believe no longer in themselves, but in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Think back to your time before conversion. Maybe you grew up in a godless household. You lived the way of this world for a long period of time, but yet God in his sovereign love reached down into your life and changed you. He gave you faith and you turned from your sin and you repented and believed in Jesus Christ for salvation. Think back to God's providences in your life and where you grew up in the environment, in the church that you've been in for the past number of years, how God brought you to this room right now. If we were to trace out the threads of God's providences in this room, it would extend not just throughout Simi Valley, but really across the world. Because God's providence is at work in everything. And so this morning, be encouraged that God's providence is working all of these things for the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, who we speak peace to the nations. Let's pray.